Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Jewish Wisdom on JTV. Today, we are joined uh, via Zoom link in America, New York, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, who is the founder of the Meaningful Life Center and the author of a book called Toward a Meaningful Life, which you can find on Amazon and online. And the book focuses on the teachings of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, and that's what I wanted to focus on today, because um, to my shame, JTV hasn't yet really done a video covering specifically and just just on solely on the the the, the wisdom of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And I've got to say I'm a little bit late to this party. I've becoming more and more aware and learning about him and reading some of the, the biographies about him in recent years. Um, and he really was one of the most transformative figures in Jewish history. And not, not just of recent times, but throughout all, all Jewish history. He, he transformed the world. He transformed much of the Jewish world's way of thinking. And Rabbi Jacobson's book is all about this. And the Rabbi Jacobson uh, was and is a student of the Lubavitcher Rabbi. So he really is the perfect person to be speaking to about this. Um, but when I think of ideas of the, the, the concepts of pushing love of every single Jew, of every single human being, of, of positive thinking, you know, we're so caught up today in negative thinking, thinking it's more rational to be negative and skeptical. You know, Rabbi, I actually have on my wall that, that famous quote of his, think good and, and it will be good. It's such a, so simple and so easy to mock that kind of way of thinking, but it is actually so true and in many ways can actually be self-fulfilling. Um, and in his, his belief in creating a perfect world, being positive, that the messianic era really is, is on its way. So, Rabbi, the first thing I want to do is ask you, what, what, what do you think are the characteristics of the Rebbe that made him such a standout leader for you? Thank you, firstly, for having me. It's a real honor. I love talking about the Rebbe because in many ways, he's been my uh, spiritual mentor and in many ways helped me discover my own soul, my own destiny, my own calling in life. So I thank you for that opportunity. To answer your question, I, I would say that in a long chain of leaders that go all the way back to Moses of the Bible, you find certain characteristics that really define these visionaries. These are people, the Rebbe was a person just like Moses back in his time that was not focused on self, but on the bigger picture, on the cause, on the purpose of life. Why are we here? And as soon as you get your self-interest out of the way and you're focusing on what I'm needed for, not what I need, you are a very different type of human being. So I could say firsthand sitting at the feet of the Rebbe, he was a man completely 24 seven dedicated to a cause greater than himself. And that's what made him so compelling because it wasn't about ego, it wasn't about power or control. It was about that higher calling. And secondly, as you indicated, recognizing that each one of us, every human being on this earth, every man, woman, and child, has an indispensable mission to play because we have, we have a unique soul that is unique to each one of us. And our mission is to help each of us discover that soul and actualize it. And I believe that were the main features though, when you have that in place. Now, obviously he was a brilliant man, compassionate man, a spiritual person. I mean, I can go on with many accolades, but you asked me to capture it. I think those are the main qualities, the humility, and the ability to be rise above himself and see the bigger picture and, and empower every individual with their calling in this life. 
And do you have any personal standout experiences that you had with him? Yes, I, I should mention the reason I was able to write this book Toward a Meaningful Life was because for many years, I played a role, what is called in the Chabad or Lubavitch lingo, called being a choser and a maniach. These two Hebrew words, which I'll translate. When the Rebbe would speak many, very, very often, many times it was on Sabbath and holidays, on the Shabbat and holidays, when according to Jewish traditional law, no recordings are made and no notes are taken. So we needed to use our minds to remember verbatim hours and hours of these talks. So that was my job that I did for over 15 years. And the second part of the job was after the holiday or after the Shabbat to document it in, and publish a full version of it. So my most closest experiences with the Rebbe was that that's what I did. And therefore I, I had close communication with him literally on a daily basis. Well, first of all, asking questions, clarifying points, and he edited many of these talks. So my relationship goes very intimate in that way. And I'd be very honest, I exploited the opportunity as much as I was able, when you have a mind like that and a soul like that, to be able to um, draw from him as much as I was able to about any topic on life. So I have many, many stories I can share. I just wanted to first give you that overall background. If you want something specific, I'll share um, one, one anecdote. The Rebbe was a very brutal editor, you know, because like a, like a surgeon with a scalpel, he was able to raise a sharp mind. He would look at every idea. And the Rebbe was very, uh, many times critical in a good way. I found it to be constructive and it taught me to become far better. So I remember once I wrote something to the Rebbe and, um, and, I, uh, and, I, uh, and I asked a few questions and the Rebbe said, isn't it time that you began to have been trained enough to be able to find the answers to the questions instead of always asking me the question? In other words, essentially that a true teacher isn't just one who gives you answers, but one that provides you with the tools to find answers. So just as one anecdote among many, many that have interaction. But if you want to be more, if you want to ask me something more specific in this vein, I'm happy to go deeper into it because I have obviously a, a wealth of experiences to share. Well, there, there's, there's, there's plenty of, of things I, I'd like to talk about. Um, one of the, the the questions I had, because I was reading um, the uh, Telushkin book about the Rebbe recently, and it almost seems to me like just so much wisdom and so much brilliant insight and radical insight um, and approaches to things. I, I'm struggling to see where it all, he seemed to have it from very early on. Where, where did he get it all from? Like, what, 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 do you know what were the big influences to the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, on his on, on his teachings, like were there any specific teachers, specific books, specific ways of thinking that really influenced him? Sure. Um, well, the ones I'm aware of, remember the Rebbe was born actually in Ukraine, in Nikolaev, in a city called Nikolaev in 1902. So we're talking about Tsarist Russia. So firstly, I would say his first major influences were his father and his mother and his grandparents. His father was a great um, scholar, mystic, Kabbalist. His mother and her father were tremendous scholars as well. So he, he grew up in a scholarly home, in a home that was very devout and pious and very committed. So I'm sure those early influences had a deep impression on him. We know that his, um, his father learned with him and he had different tutors that taught him to a point where the school was not enough. He needed private tutor, tutor, tutoring. 
And then the influences being that he grew up in a Chabad home or Chabad philosophy, which is of course a integration of Talmudic, mystical, esoteric, as well as historical biblical teachings. So he had a very powerful exposure to different ways of studying Torah and, stu and using the mind. Now, this is all in addition to his just his genetic uh, mind that he I'm sure inherited brilliance from, from his uh, father and from his grandparents. Remember, he's in a direct line straight to all the Chabad Rebbes that go back all the way back to the Maral of Prague, all the way back to King David. So the, you're talking about a lineage of, uh, of uh, prodigies and spiritual leaders. I'm sure all of that contributed. Now, in his youth, we know that he had studied together with the great Gaon of Ragachov, Rabbi Yosef Rosen of the city of Ragachov. We know that in late in the 1920s, he went to, who he, he would meet the previous Chabad Rebbe, Lubavitch Rebbe of Yosef Yitzchok. He would ultimately become his second son-in-law. So he studied under him. And he was, uh, we know he had exposure and connection to many of the great scholars in Russia. This is, we're talking about in Petersburg and in uh, other cities. And throughout his years, um, in, later in Berlin and Paris, he got to know Rabbi Soloveitchik of the Rav, and then later in Paris, met many of the scholars there. So I'm sure as a, as a, uh, a brilliant man like the Rebbe was, he picked up a lot from many different individuals. But I think the main influences would be his direct family, parents, and, um, and, and media teachers that I mentioned. Right. And I, I want to ask a question which may be somewhat uh, politically incorrect, um, but it's something that I genuinely want to, want to understand, which is that the Hasidic movement, from what I understand it when, it, when it was first sort of conceived and first spread, was an enfranchising movement. It was basically trying to make Judaism and spirituality more accessible to the masses. And a feeling a lot of people get is that today uh, some uh, Hasidic strains actually are are not quite embodying those um, values. Uh, they're quite closed off, and perhaps they might say, "Well, we need to be in order to protect our community." But it's less enfranchising; it's more exclusive. Um, but the Rebbe was very um, radical, not just in Hasidic circles, but throughout the Jewish world, in in leading the way in terms of outreach and for asking Jews who are more knowledgeable and educated in Jewish practice and Jewish studying and Jewish observance to reach out to um, Jews who know less um, and even to reach out to non-Jews. Um, so my question is, do you think he was actually just recapturing the spirit of the Hasidic movement early on? And what, and what, what do you, has something gone wrong in perhaps other Hasidic sects, which, which um, Chabad has really... Um, uh, sort of been a pioneering in, in trying to focus on g going beyond your immediate community? It's an excellent question, and I'm glad you asked it. And don't be afraid of asking politically incorrect questions. Those are the best ones of all. So let me respond uh, very candidly. Be, ca be careful what you say, Rabbi. You don't know what will come next. <laughs> Who knows? Okay, go for it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Go on. I am known as someone that there are no questions that are taboo. I respond to everything. There's nothing you cannot say that will offend me or I will, I will, um, I will uh, resist from answering. So go for it. Um, uh, I, I would say this, that I'll take it a step further. 
Um, you're absolutely right. Even though I don't want to be critical of other movements or cultures or communities, but I'll take the question broader. Being someone who grew up in the Chabad and in a religious community, I've also deal with the entire world with many secular people, including non-Jewish people. And there's a larger stereotype that go beyond Hasidim, that in religion, religion in general, and Judaism in particular, are also very parochial and very limiting. That means that you need to conform to certain standards to be part of the community. Certain uh, dress codes or others, you know, that's what some people see as rituals or mitzvot and very exclusionary as opposed to empowering, as you put it. And in truth, that itself is also a um, distortion. Because if you go back to the original, Abraham, the founder of monotheism, the founder of the Jewish uh, people, he was a uh, radical in the sense he was a nonconformist. He was a uh, maverick and a trailblazer uh, and defied actually the norm of the time to introduce the idea of a transcendent God to all human beings, regardless of background. Now, thank God he, had not to, he did not have to deal with the social cultural elements of religion because there was none of that that existed. Now, the fact of the matter, just doing a lesson in sociology is this, as communities grow, even if they begin with revolutions and, and tremendously, um, 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 mind, I would say tremendously new ideas, but as they become communities, the nature of human beings is they tend to become conformist. They tend to become cultural. They tend to become like another country club. And unfortunately, religion has also um, fallen into that trap. That now, you know, you're my, you, you dress like I do, you pray like I do. And it sometimes loses the non-parochial universal dimension that God created us all and that we have to find harmony within our diversity. So it was really Judaism in general was always meant to be not just for individuals, not even only for Jews. I know may that might sound radical to some. Its message is a message of hope and of virtue and salvation for all human beings and a method to do so. When I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, that's exactly what I captured. It's a book that's read by people of all backgrounds, Jew, non-Jew, men, women, all ages. And it's really universal in that sense, capturing that we are all here on this earth to fulfill a mission, a higher transcendent mission. So in that spirit, the Rebbe just continued, which exactly as you said, what Hasidus came to do was to empower each individual soul. And sometimes the focus can unfortunately be on mechanical Judaism, on the mechanics, on the rituals, on how you dress, on externals and lose the spirit and the soul. It's like, you know, instead of listening to the music, you're just playing the instrument and you have to know how to listen to the music. And the Rebbe did reintroduce that as did his predecessors, which was to reintroduce that universal spirit that welcomes and encompasses and unconditionally loves all human beings, even if you're completely different. And, it's, and I believe it's not that radical. It's actually the original, the way that Judaism was always meant to be, not meant to be a parochial, um, a parochial religion. I don't even like the word religion, to be very honest. But, the, but instead of being parochial, being something that is really all expansive for everybody to adapt to in their own particular way. I remember someone asking me when I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, they say, do you expect this book that I'm going to become a chassid and dress black and white on Shabbat with the, the whole garments? I said, no, if you do that, I think I would have failed. I think the goal of my book, I said to him, was that the teaching should empower you to be a better you, not that you should look like me or look like someone else. 
to be who you have to be and live up to your, because we all end up being conformists one way or another. And unfortunately, different Hasidic groups and others fall into that trap of that type of conformist, exclusionary, and uh, almost um, rejecting anything that's not like themselves. And you spoke about the fact that the Rebbe spoke about God, uh, you know, needing uh, and having a unique role for every single human being and talking about the Jewish people's role in teaching uh, the mitzvot, the laws commanded to non-Jews, um, which was also, I think, pretty radical, um, but I think actually quite intuitive if you think about the Torah's message. Um, but how did the Rebbe and how would you uh, characterize the, the, the Jewish people's relationship with God and non-Jewish people's relationship with God? Because on the one hand, that's a very, there's a very nice message uh, for non-Jewish people that God, God needs everyone and, and the Jewish people are really just there to spread a message uh, and a template for which all human beings can have a relationship with God. But on the other hand, there does seem to be um, you know, emphasis by the Rebbe and in the Torah of a unique, special place the Jewish people hold in, in God's heart. Um, and that is perhaps somewhat, I don't know, a little bit less comfortable to <laughs> share with non-Jewish people. Is that the case? And, and how, how do we characterize the difference between these two different relationships with God? And what, what's really the case? Okay, great. I see you, you accepted my challenge and you went for it. Great. Um, um, it's an excellent question, and it fits into another one of the stereotypes, which is the Jews as the chosen people and so on and so forth. So the first thing we need to state is the following. God is neither Jewish or not Jewish. God is beyond all these uh, labels and names. The fact is, just as God is beyond gender, God is neither male nor female. And God is neither rectangle, square, or, um, or triangle. So we're talking about a God that is beyond structures and definitions and labels as we know them. This God created different types of people. Let's start with male, female. That is not man-made. Male, female is a thing by birth, by gender. So okay. Now, um, notwithstanding the discussions today about and the controversies around it, but the point being that there were that people are different. And frankly, we some have blue eyes, some have brown eyes, some are. Uh, taller, some are shorter, some are more intelligent, some are more emotional, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the idea of diversity is not a contradiction to the one God. We call it one God. Now, I'm not getting into the philosophy, the philosophical explanations that are plenty on this topic in Hasidic thought. How does one unity ultimately create diversity? But the end of the being, the end of the story is that every piece of this diversity are all parts of a larger harmony. Think of it like a tapestry or musical, different instruments or musicians in a symphony, in an orchestra. They all have to play their role. So in that case, there's no human being on earth, Jew or non-Jew, and man, woman, or child that is, that's dispensable. Everybody was chosen by God. No one would be here if God did not put you here. So everybody has a unique role to play. The question is, what are the differences between the roles? And the reason I'm, I, I gave the long preface is because without establishing that, we right away get into this uh, superior, inferior stuff that always leads to problems. You have to realize that everybody in the, in the area that they need to do their job, they are completely necessary. If you don't do what you need to do, I cannot replace you. Simple as that. So in that context, you can ask the question, so why do we even talk about Jews as special? I mean, everybody is special, and that's absolutely correct. And the answer is, 
that they're not special in a way that makes them better. It's special simply because the Jews paid a price and they were ready to commit to God before other nations did. But the fact of the matter is, you have people, I know many non-Jewish people that are more faithful and more connected to God than many Jews I know. So who am I to judge? So my response in general is that Judaism is more than just a people or a race. It's a philosophy. It's a philosophy of a, of a people that chose not to serve others, but to serve God, not to serve themselves. So in that sense, it's, it's an ideal and a standard. That's why I, I have many non-Jews who tell me, you know what? I feel I'm very Jewish. Now, what does that mean? They're legally not Jewish. They're not born to a Jewish mother. They were not converted, but their spirit is the Jewish concept of, of realizing that we are here to serve something greater. So the Jewish people, like some people like to call them the people of the book. I was reading several, I mean, there's some great books that are written about how Jews changed the culture of the universe and, changed, and brought civilization to the world. They happen to be there at the right time at the right place beginning with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they became the people who brought morality to this world. I'm not saying that to pull rank and say we're better because of it, but it means we have a role to play. It's in a way like you become the teacher. The Jewish people in general became like the teachers. So in that sense, they, they have a special role to play and that to be a light onto nations. Now, can a non-Jew play that role? Absolutely. But that, this still doesn't, this, that still does not mean that we all have to be one. We are all diverse in different ways. And that's how I generally present it. And I find it very comfortable to do so. I've done this even with audiences that were not receptive and they were very surprised to hear my answer because they thought I was gonna go into a whole conversation how Jews are superior to non-Jews. And I see it far more the way I just described it. Now, is a Jewish soul unique in a way that a non-Jewish soul may not have that same uniqueness? We can discuss that as well, what that means exactly. But at the end of the day, it's like saying, we know in this world there are 8 billion people. There are some people who by nature are more transcendent and more spiritually wired. Does that make them superior to someone who's not as spiritually astute or, uh, or sensitive? No, it means there's different roles to play. Like Just like some people are going to be the, the leader and another person will be a, a subordinate, doesn't make him inferior. It's everyone has different strengths. Some people have the strength of the vision. Some people have the strength of execution. That's how I would present it. But you just said we don't give God, you know, God doesn't have any definitions. He's beyond definition, but he does want to be known as the God of Israel. That's how he, that's how he declares himself to us. And he's, he, you know, it's sort of like a marriage that occurs between God and the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. That sounds pretty exclusive. No, but yeah, but there's also many references that you did not mention where God is called the God of the nations, God of all nations. It's not, you don't find that, you don't find that as the only description of God in the Torah. You'll find very often where God, God of all people, or God of all nations. Um, in regard to what you're just describing, correct? At Sinai, a special, uh, I would say, a special um, union, even marriage, was forged between the Jewish people and God, and that was a union, a mutual commitment to each other. But the commitment was that the Jews would spread this word to the entire world, and that everybody could ultimately join God in that marriage. Right. Keep that in mind. So it's true. It began with the Jewish people. Let's be honest. Uh, three quarters of this planet, uh, we're talking about over 2 billion Christians and 1 point whatever 5 billion Muslims, will tell you that our first prophet is Abraham. They all trace their beliefs to the Bible and to the Torah. And no one denies that. We're not getting now into the elements of anti-Semitism and stuff like that. 
So the, I, I would say that a, a large part of this world, if not all of the world, would say, by, no, by all means, the Jews did bring the message of God to the world, but it became a message for all people. And, and that's exactly the most beautiful part of it. That's why when we think about the age of Messiah, we don't say there will all be Jews in the world. We'll say there'll be all nations, and all nations will serve one God. Think You talk about marriage. A, a, a couple are married, and they love each other deeply and exclusively. So they can exclude everybody else, or they can welcome others and teach them how to get married as well. That's what I would say the marriage at Sinai was really a marriage to be a model for every human being on earth, how to marry God in a, and have a, a communion and relationship with God. And I've, I've often thought about it through God saying, you know, in the Exodus, that the Israel are his firstborn. And the job of the firstborn is to transfer the values of the parents to, the other to their other children. And that's the Jewish people's role. We want every, every, everyone as a child of God. We're just the firstborn who are here to give you the, the tools, so to speak, to have that relationship. Um, I fully agree and, and, and resonate uh, with what you said. Um, let's go back to the Rebbe. Um, so the Rebbe was known for his love of every Jew and of every human being. How, how can we come to love our fellow, well, let's just start with family and friends, but then our fellow Jew and fellow human being? How, how can we, what are practical things we can do to, to, to be more loving towards each other? So let's begin with perspective. There's two ways to look at something. I'll call it soul-centric or body-centric. I could look at you and say, okay, what can you do for me today? How can you benefit me? And in turn, I'll give you something in return. It'll be a negotiation. Or I could look at you and say, you are a soul that God put in this world. And you have a unique, beautiful thing to contribute. And how can I learn from you? How can I grow through you? So instead of a world of dog eats dog, where it's all about survival of the fittest, the key thing to remember in this way, love always comes when you are a more spiritual focused person. You're not thinking about your self-interest first and then another but you're really thinking about something greater than yourself. Love, love is a direct extension of transcending yourself and allowing another person into your life. So that's the, the, the philosophical foundation of the point. Practically speaking, what the Rebbe taught us, and you see it, that there's no us and them. I'm speaking to you right now. We meet for the first time. I look at you. For all, for all I know, you are a far greater soul than I am. You have much to teach me as much as I may have to teach you. There's a certain lack of sense of I'm better than you. I'm, I know more than you do. It's, there's no us and them. We're two, um, I would say, two souls on a journey converging and trying to empower each other. So it's a way of looking at people and acting in kind. And instead of focusing on that self-interest self, um, point. And there it comes down to also how we treat each other. That we are kind, compassionate, non-judgmental. That's an important one. Judgmentalism is a real poison, a real cancer, and that we really accept each other. Now, I may disagree with you. That doesn't mean I don't love you. I can disagree with my siblings and doesn't mean I don't love them. You could disagree, you can passionately disagree, but don't personalize it. Um, allow it to be okay. The disagreement is about a subject. It's not personalized. It's not, it doesn't become a personal uh, attack on one person or another and feeding into people's insecurities and so on and so forth. These are just some key points I would make. Yeah, and I really love that point you made about how we should never look at someone with any kind of superiority complex. And one of the dangers in Jewish outreach or any outreach, which I think Chabad for some reason have so successfully um, avoided, um, 
is having feeling in, in, any, in any way superior to the person that they may be teaching or the person that may not know as much. I love this story of a, a rabbi that went to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe and said that he was doing Kirov Rehokim, outreach towards people who are far, let's say, from Torah or from God. And the Rebbe said, who are you? Not who are you, but who is to say who is far from or far or close to God? Um, you know, and I know and I, I know you said you don't like these terms religious. I don't love these terms. I mean, you know, I know of someone that uh, hosts Friday night meals for the person that's a bit socially awkward or autistic or, um, you know, d uh, divorced or whatever, or has a, uh, um, let's say, spits across the table and, you know, they, 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 they can't find a place to go for a meal. And uh, she, she, you know, she doesn't keep Shabbat herself personally and she doesn't keep kosher, but is she religious? You know, and people say it's such narrow terms, right, for uh, for that. And uh, so the 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 term is so so narrow. And I just think it's we've got to be so careful to in how in, in how we uh, look at one another when it comes to Jewish outreach. Um, how do you think the Rebbe um, and and I think Chabad generally avoid this? Um, and also, how can we be less judgmental, uh, generally speaking? In, in life, because that's one of the things that I really find so uh, painful about um, when I see just interpersonal conflicts with people, where I just feel that people are so stuck in their one dimensional view of the person that they're not actually able to like see things a bit more objectively. Great question. Um, to follow, continue where I left off, I would say the most important thing is this, you know, uh, in Freudian psychology, the essence of a human being is the id, the self, which means it's all about self-interest, pleasure, your own personal pleasure, sexual pleasure, or whatever it may be. In Judaism, the key focus is God, not self, that you are created in a divine image, and you are sent here in this world on a mission. So I think it's critical from, from birth, every Chabadnik grows up from, from literally from pregnancy even, being fed this message that you are, it doesn't begin with you and end with you. You are here to serve. You are here to, to fulfill a calling and a mission that's greater than you are. If you grow up in a home and a culture where the focus is always me, 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 and what am I going to do to advance myself? I'm going to build a career, make money, power, control. Even if you're an ethical person, as soon as me is the center, listen, you wake up in the morning, the first thing you feel is yourself. That's why in Judaism, we have a beautiful prayer. We say, Moda'ani, I acknowledge, I thank you for returning my soul to me. I am not just about me and my hunger and my fatigue and my needs and so on. There's that, so once you have that attitude, then you look at others differently as well. You don't look at others as just being an adjunct or a, a, a prop for your needs. You see them as they are as well, as a unique divine soul. So it really comes down, this is something that I, is just second nature. We never, my table, whoever came to the table was always that way. We always saw people that way because we were taught to look at ourselves that way. We don't think, we don't begin by seeing me and then the rest of the world is here to serve me in some way. Unfortunately, we live in a culture, especially uh, in, the, in, in, in an indulgent culture, that really does see themselves as the center of the universe and everything orbits around you. And that is, I think, a tremendous different perspective that changes how we look at others differently. Yeah. 
So we're a little bit short on time, but one of the last questions I wanted to ask you um, was about the Rebbe's having such drive and such positivity in his aspect. And, he, you know, I remember hearing that he said, you know, when so much of Chabad, Chabad had achieved so much globally and there were so many shluchim, so many um, Chabad um, teachers and um, uh, rabbis and families around, around the world, he said, you know, I haven't, we haven't even started. Um, and it was, had such a positive uh, drive. How, how can we develop that kind of positive approach to life, that sense of drive, that sense of, and also like fight against nihilism, that voice within us that says, what does this all mean? What's the, what's the point of it all anyway? So in the first chapter of Toward a Meaningful Life, I, I quote a story that happened with the Rebbe's great-grandfather, the Semach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe. When he was a child, he was playing on a ladder. He was climbing on a ladder with other children. And all the other children were afraid to climb to the top. They climbed one quarter of the way up, halfway up, three quarters of the way up. But the Tzemach Tzedek, even as a child, climbed all the way to the top. So his grandfather, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad, Alter Rebbe as he's known, said to his grandson afterwards, he said, why were you the only one that climbed all the way to the top? So he said, Zayda, which means grandpa, very simple, because when the other children were climbing, they kept looking down. So they saw how high they were. They were afraid to climb higher. When I was climbing, I kept looking up. I saw how low I was. So it motivated me to climb higher. It's all about where you're looking at. If you're looking at people that have accomplished less than you did, or you look down, you look at your past, you'll say, hey, I've done so much compared to, to my past or compared to others. But when you look ahead and you look at what's possible, not just what was, what, what was done, then you are always driven. It's like a marathon. I haven't reached the finish line. That was the Rebbe's driving force that he taught us all. That in everything in life, don't say to yourself, okay, I've done so much. Say how much more there is because there's so much more to do. And it's really a very positive way of looking at life because you're always looking to aspire. This doesn't mean we don't have at times the need for a respite or serenity and calm. Obviously we do, but we're always thinking okay, what's the next milestone, the next place to grow? And if you did that in your life, whatever area of life that you're, that you're involved in, you'll see it just makes you a greater person. All great people will always tell you, as much as I've done, there's a lot more to do. And it's not because they're depressed by it. On the contrary, that's what motivates them. I think it's, again, going to a perspective that allows you to say there's, there's look, we live in a world now that needs, needs many blessings and prayers. Even if there are many great things, there's always more to do because we have to create a much better and per more perfect world. But what about that, that, the question of, but why even bother? That, then what about, how would the Rebbe respond to the nihilistic voice that says, why should I even achieve? Why should I be driven? For what? I mean, I would translate it into a psychological question. Do you feel you have any value? When you wake up in the morning, do you have anything to contribute? If a person feels, why does it matter? I think it's going to undermine everything about them. Um, I don't have a quick answer to someone who feels depressed. And I would just say to them, your life is extremely valuable. And why, why are you giving up on yourself? So it sometimes is an emotional block where people say, hey, why, why does it really matter? But the fact of the matter is that one of the most important messages the Rebbe taught and continues to teach is that you matter. I have a line in my book called birth is God saying you matter. You are indispensable and you are needed. And if you don't do what you have to accomplish in this world, no one else can do it. 
this, this is something that should be taught and inculcated into each child from the youngest age. I know many people I meet are very successful. They have money. They have other, other achievements. But they have no reason. They have no idea why they're here. And they always wonder, well, am I needed? Is it important? Who really cares? And it's true. It creates an element of apathy. I will tell you, people who have suffered or are recovery, don't ask that question. Because once you hit rock bottom and you've been hurt, you don't usually ask whether it's important to survive because you fight for it. It's when you're, you become complacent and apathetic when things are, are going your way and you take it for granted. It's hard to really uh, teach someone who's in that nihilistic state, as you put it. But I would say the following. On a long-term basis, this is something we must teach our children from the youngest age. You should know you are needed in this world. You have something that you and only you can accomplish. On a short-term basis, I don't know if there's a, a, a magic pill. I just think you have to get someone inspired by the passions that they're interested in. If they like music or they like art or they like writing or something else, get them excited about something where they feel that they're contributing something. I don't know if there's a quick fix if someone really is in that dark place, uh, but there's one thing for sure. Do not let a person like that isolate themselves and just feed off their negativity because it just gets becomes a vicious cycle. Yeah. It's critical to be around upbeat and positive people. That's what ultimately creates that will and drive to, to, to achieve something. Yeah, I think it's that people sometimes who are in that state, they can't even believe that God, a God would really care or is like, like, it really means something to him. It just seems so fantastical. Why would it mean anything to God, what I do, what I contribute to his world? Yeah, but as someone that counsels many people, I can tell you, very often that psychological pathology comes from often growing up in a home or an environment that undermined you, that did not validate you, that, that criticized you. So you begin to think of yourself of someone not worth love, not worth value. Many people who question themselves that way, it's usually was fed to them. It didn't just come from nowhere. So you have to always look back in a person's life. What caused you to feel so worthless or so negligible or so uh, dispensable? Mm. Okay, well, the final thing I'd like to ask before we wrap up is, um, is there any particular, for our audience, um, any particular Hasidic uh, transformative practices that you could share with us that might not, let's say, be so well known or something that might be novel to some of our viewers that, that you might want to share with us or that you find particularly um, impactful? The Rebbe was once asked, what is his favorite prayer? And he said, Moda'ani. Moda'ani is a one-line prayer, or you could say a, med a meditation that's said every morning, as soon as you wake up, even before anything else, basically a voice of gratitude. Thank you for returning my soul to me. But it's more than just lip service. It really means thank you for making me indispensable. Thank you for giving me a purpose. Thank you for renewing my contract. And it's meant to infuse the entire day. The Hasidic teaching says that the point of the Moda'ani should be spread to extend to all the details of your day that it should permeate it all with that sense of purpose and a sense of urgency. This is classic Hasidic meditation that leads you to seeing your life in a meaningful way, a purposeful way. So even when you eat breakfast or you walk, take a walk or you commute or you go to work, it's all filled with the awareness 
that you have a soul beating inside of you and how are you going to spiritualize the material parts of your day? So it's like looking into each of those items, which leads me to point number two, that in Kabbalistic and Hasidic texts, they talk about elevating sparks, divine sparks, which simply means that there's spiritual energy everywhere embedded in your life, in everything that you, your life is about, your personality, the people you know, the places you live at and travel to, everything that you interact with, workers, employees, employers, strangers, there are these spiritual opportunities, spiritual energy, and it's your mission is to redeem, to free that energy, which means you meet somebody. It's not just a business meeting. How can we turn it in a way that will turn it into something that will help another person? I remember someone reading Toward a Meaningful Life, a businessman in New York, and he said to me, your book changed my life. He's, he was an executive of a very high-powered firm, and he was seen always as a cutthroat negotiator and a tough guy, and he read in Toward a Meaningful Life, place a charity box in your desk, on your desk in your office. So he placed a charity box. And every time he had these meetings, high level meetings, people, he, he had this charity box and he would put a coin into it. And people started saying, what is this? So he says that he read, this is a way of elevating even my workplace into something more noble and more benevolent. And people would start participating and they would all put a coin in. And he says, it changed the whole climate of my meetings, of my relationships. People saw me differently. So this is Hasidic teachings, infusing even the material parts of our lives, the mundane, simple things, even trivial things with deeper purpose and deeper uh, meaning. There you go, folks. You heard it here. Put a charity box on your work desk. Um, Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much. The book is called Towards a Meaningful Life. Um, Rabbi, this was a fairly short discussion um, and we would absolutely love the opportunity to speak to you again on JTV. Um, thank you so much for your time and uh, look forward to the next one. It was a true pleasure. Thank you so much. My honor to be with you anytime you'd like to speak further. Thank you so much.